This is hell. Oh, Lord. I left my coffee and water out there, and now i got to go out and get it in a few minutes. Uh, Harry Nilsson. I love Nilsson. I love Nilsson Schmilsson, and that's one of those uh, musicians that my girlie and I completely completely are in different positions. By the way, we do have some breaking news. As we have discussed on the show recently, past guest Seymour Hirsch posted an article at his Substack claiming that the U.S. was behind blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline that connected Russia with Europe in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That story was virtually ignored here in the U.S. media while getting lots of traction internationally overseas. One of the problems that people had with the article was that it was based on one unnamed source in U.S. intelligence, or maybe a former U.S. intelligence agent. Now, what many think is a clear response to the Hirsch accusation, the New York Times is reporting U.S. officials are saying the pipeline was blown up by a pro-Ukrainian group. Of course, Ukraine and President Zelensky are denying any pro-Ukrainian group was involved. In that New York Times story, at no point did they mention Seymour Hersh's past reporting. So for those keeping score at home, Cy Hersh says the U.S. did it, the U.S. says Ukrainians did it, and nobody seems to be suggesting the Russians were involved, which will likely further strain ties between the United States and Ukraine. I have no idea where this is headed, but the war may be ending sooner than any of us could have possibly hoped. And the, one of the other crazy things about this is in the New York Times story, they don't have any sources other than, quote-unquote, U.S. officials. So who the hell knows what's going to happen here, but this could create a huge divide between Zelensky and the U.S. government. Another end of the world is possible, and not just in Ukraine. This is hell, and this time the end of the world we may be facing starts in eastern Africa with the construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam that will shift control over the waters of the Nile, to some degree. For Ethiopia, the hope is the dam will be bring electricity to a nation suffering from an extreme lack of it. There's also the hope that it could lift the nation out of poverty and end repeated famine while making the nation a, nat- a regional energy hub. Which all sounds great, right? Well, not so fast. The problem is, as of now, Egypt controls the Nile through the High Aswan Dam that has determined who gets how much water along the Blue Nile tributary, the largest of the two tributaries, the Blue and the White Nile. It certainly doesn't help that Ethiopia and Egypt have had tensions between the two nations for centuries, tensions that rise to the level of religious in nature, all of which led President Trump, while in office, to flippantly suggest that if the Ethiopian dam is built... Egypt will blow it up. However, with the U.S. seemingly backing Egypt in its rivalry with Ethiopia and China constructing the dam at, or G-E-R-D, GERD as it's known, things might get dicey and real fast. In a few minutes, we'll try to figure out what the hell is happening in, on, and along the Blue Nile when we have the return of Ann Newman, who wrote the Baffler magazine article Hydropower, a dam on the Nile Royals Democratic Relations in the Horn of Africa. The story was supported by funding from the Pulitzer Center and is the author of The Good Death, an exploration of dying in America. Anne was on This Is Hell back in November of 2020 
before we had access to the vaccine to discuss another Baffler article, Drugs for the People, Rethinking the Global Pharmaceutical Supply Chain. You can follow Ann on Twitter at OtherSpoon. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? How have you been? Anything new in your world that you'd like to share with our listeners? What's up, bud? Doing good. Boy, I landed the big one. Did I ever tell you that I'm a freak for trash and that I ride around in alleys looking for furniture and consumer electronics? See, do you run into Lindsay much? No, but we are. We share that. It's funny that we do so much the same. We live in the same neighborhood, work for the same radio show, and both dive like Scrooge McDuck into trash. <laughs> While I was moving this huge, like, uh, you know, shelving, like eight eight foot of shelving on my bike trailer, feeling very accomplished. I got that into my joint. And then as I'm getting that in, I see, you know, my white whale, this enormous 55-inch Bravia Sony television. And uh, it's so heavy. And so I'm like the old man in the sea trying to get this huge fish onto my boat. So is this one of the old CRT this kind? The, no, or no, the, it's or, not a CRT. It's a flat screen. It's an early LCD. Okay. I thought it was plasma because it seemed heavier, more dense, right. more enormous than anything I'd ever gotten before. And I'm I'm solo, you know? I'm out there in my boat. <laughs> and I'm giving myself a hernia, getting it on my thing. It is. It's an early LCD. And then the thing is, I had to go to work. I raced to work. I get there on time, but like, I didn't get to plug it in. I didn't get to look it up. So for eight tantric hours, I'm just <laughs> thinking about this TV. Does it work? What model is it? I'm like trying to find it, but all, you know, TVs pretty much look like rectangles. Right. I get home, you know, fires right up. The picture's beautiful. You know, I'm walking in the Lord's path. Things Sweet. are turning around for me. Sweet. Yeah. I thought that there was going to be a horrible end to the story oh, where, it, where it turned on, it looked great, and all of a sudden it just went out. No, it's very nice. Our I ni- watched Birdman. It's good. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I, our uh, nicest TV, we have a couple of TVs in our house that uh, when my uh, folks passed away, I decided that they probably wanted me to buy a couple of really nice TVs. And so uh, the really nice one that we have... I'm not kidding you, dude. It's uh, it's really nice. It's a LCD. It's mm. really high end. It's really yeah. nice. Uh, but I have to punch it like Fonzie to make sure the picture Isn't works. Is that a fact? <laughs> yes. There's something that loose. That doesn't sound too nice. <laughs> no, it's, there's something loose in the guts there. Okay. Dan, one year ago at this very moment, I was waiting for the results of a CT scan while explaining, or experiencing, I should say, the worst stomach pain I have ever had. And I've had a lot since 2008 when I was first diagnosed with an abdominal infection that would flare up a couple times every three to, I don't know, three, six, nine months, I don't know, for 15 years. The scan I would learn later that day found uh, several massive infections throughout my, well, the technical word for it, and you might not have heard this before, it is my guts, leading to an emergency surgery that I would later find out I had a 60-40 chance of surviving, and the surgery that was supposed to take only a couple of hours took closer to five. So thanks to you, Dan, as well as Lindsey Gorey, Sebastian Vooper, uh, Richard Norwood, and everyone who kept the show running while I was hospitalized, and then the subsequent three months of recovery that forced me off the air. If it were not for all of you, as well as Jeff Dorchin and Ronaldo Magaldi, this is hell may not have survived, as well as the contribution of Pete Valavanis, who owns the bar downstairs from where we are sitting right now, who uh, drove me to my first doctor's appointment and helped a lot when in running errands for me during my the worst points of my illness. So a very, very special thanks to all of you and to my partner, 
whose help and love got me through the whole ordeal, although I still have one more surgery scheduled for June to complete the healing process. Now, Dan, as I'm running to go get my water and coffee, please share with our listening audience something far more important than my near-death experience, and that is, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Because I know you have to get your coffee, maybe I'll relate it sort of in a measured way. It's, what was a difficult work experience? And, I wonder, how did you overcome it and that's all she wrote thank you for that vamping i truly appreciate it dan the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell stuff you want you can see all of our stuff right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support there's a t-shirt a tote bag a face mask a winter hat a trucker's cap this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s Whoever wins gets their choice of all of our stuff at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. During our last uh, 80 minutes of the show, you have to send it there because I don't have access to my email while I'm here. Again, we must have your answer by the end of today's show. When we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, Dan, what's uh, Jeff doing during the Moment of Truth today? This week, Jeff stubs his toe on a cultural stumbling block. Oh, that sounds horrible. As I have been mentioning this week, we are currently scheduling all of our guests for shows during the month of March. We want this process, as well as everything about the show, to be increasingly small-D democratic. So we shared a list with first our Patreon patrons of 13 lucky books and their authors to be featured on the show, possibly this month. We then asked uh, our Patreon patrons what books on that list they wanted to be discussed and their authors interviewed over the next few weeks. Now, shortly after today's show, we will be sharing that list with everyone on all the social media platforms that we currently engage in. Oh, Lord, how I hate ending a sentence with a preposition. But here's what patrons have been telling us about who they want on the show. Neil C. tells us that for something maybe a little different, Todd McGowan is someone I find very illuminating. He teaches film studies and is an expert in Hegel, Zizek, and psychoanalytic theory broadly. His books are very readable. I love that comment about a book. Your book is very readable. His latest enjoyment is Enjoyment Right and Left explores how political postures are founded on forms of enjoyment. Would be happy to send a copy if interested. Yes, Neil, we are interested. Please do send a PDF if you have one to Chuck at com. Lisa P. likes three books on the list of possible guests, uh, including Julie Livingston and Andrew Ross, who wrote the book Cars in Jails, Freedom, Dreams, Debt, and Carcerality. Felicia Ariaga, who wrote the book Behind Crimigration, Ice, Law Enforcement, and Resistance in America. And past guest Alyssa Court, who wrote the book Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Recent guest Dan Colbert went off menu recommending a book and an author not on the list at Patreon, and he suggested we do an interview with Alexander Laban Hinton about his book Anthropological Witness, Lessons from the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Meanwhile, someone going only by John, very suspicious, posts 
Definitely the New Crusades, Islamophobia and the Global War on Muslims by Khaled A. Baidun. John says he thinks the topic has been overlooked since the whole Ukraine war started. Finally, Chris T. suggests Gary Young to join us as a guest in a discussion on his book, Dispatches from the Diaspora. Now, I've been in contact for many, many years with Gary Young. I think we eventually got him to be on the show maybe once, but I'm not too certain. So I'll try again, Chris, but I can't promise anything. Again, we will be sharing our current list of possible guests on all of our social media platforms shortly after today's show. So look for that as we try to make the process of selecting guests as small d democratic as possible. Coming up, the fight over the Nile. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's Moment of Truth, and we will tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. We actually have two of the three book, uh, guests already booked. Go figure. We're usually at a one-for-three level at this point. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio, which still makes absolutely no sense to me. This is hell. The national rivalries, current wars, violence and instability in Eastern Africa, from Egypt to Sudan, to Ethiopia, and even beyond, now have a new challenge, and that is, who will control the Nile in the not-so-far-off future? Here to help us have a better understanding of what the hell is happening with the Nile, returning to This Is Hell is Ann Newman, who wrote the Baffler Magazine article, Hydropower, A Dam on the Nile, Royals Democratic Relations in the Horn of Africa. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Ann. Hi, Chuck. I'm glad to be back. Um, how the hell are you? Uh, <laughs> I'm better. I'm glad I'm glad you're alive. Yes, me too. Which I wouldn't have said that at many points in, before my surgery, but I am now very much happy to be alive. I didn't I kind of took being alive for granted and I won't be doing that anymore. So no. well, I wanna... we're lucky to have you. Thank you. Um, can I can I vote on the uh, sure. guests? Sure. Yeah. Um, Alyssa Court. It's oh, yeah. a pal and her new book, Bootstrapped. I've read it already and it's fabulous. So there's my vote. Oh, great. All right. Well, it looks like that's going to be the person we'll be trying to get on the show next Tuesday because we still have an opening. Thank you very much because I've been back and forth with, with Alyssa about this book and she was a fantastic guest on the show before. Really great. So you, yeah, liked, no, you liked it. Yeah, it's it's super smart. I mean, what it, what is um, uh, the greater juggernaut in American society than this idea that we can, you know, if we work hard enough, um, save ourselves and 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 be rich. And I mean, there's so many things wrong with that. And yet it's um, devoutly compelling for many. I've uh, tried to lift myself up by the bootstraps, <laughs> ruined my back. It was really yeah. bad. It, you can't do it unless you're really an expert at yoga which I'm not. So uh, <laughs> I want to give a little bit of a background that you offer at the beginning of your article. You write there are, by conservative estimates, more than 40,000 Ethiopians and Eritreans living in Cairo. Refugees from Ethiopia and its northern neighbor Eritrea have been coming in significant numbers to the sprawling Egyptian capital for decades, whether escaping poverty, violence, or both. Many were misled by rumors that traveling up the Nile to Cairo was an easier path off the continent than other popular refugee routes, such as traveling through Libya. And you traveled to Cairo in the spring of 2022 on your way to a reporting trip in Ethiopia. And as you mentioned how Ethiopian refugees feel discriminated against, 
you write that you kept hearing similar stories with a similar explanation. Egyptians look at their neighbors from the south as a threat to their future, not because they come looking for jobs, but because they come from Ethiopia, a country that in their eyes has control over the waters of the Nile. Ethiopia is well into a multi-year plan to fill a massive reservoir behind their Grand Ethiopian Ethiopian Renaissance Dam on the Blue Nile, and Egypt is bitterly suspicious. And you add that you met Tesfahun Asefa, who spoke about facing discrimination while trying to find work. He tells you, I am Ethiopian. When I show them my work ID issued by the UN to refugees, they reject me and order me to leave. Once he was fired from a job after only three days, the boss told him, because you take our water. Is this antagonism... Is it verging on violence not only to individual refugees within Cairo, which if that's the case, please tell us about that, but potentially an international conflict between two groups rather than just against individuals? Um, Yes, on all counts. I mean, it's already violence against individuals in Cairo, as I learned when I was there. And there are other reports um, in local media that I found in Egypt. Um, But the way the story unfolded was that um, because Ethiopia was at war when I was reporting this, I wasn't sure that I'd be able to get the stories that I wanted to talk to individuals without looking like a journalist and being conspicuous. And so um, and so I have family in Cairo. It's a place that I go to quite often. And um, and so I stopped in Cairo um, because I knew there was an enormous Ethiopian and Eritrean population there um, for the reasons that you just mentioned. Like the, the countries are poor. Eritrea is one of the, it was formerly a part of Ethiopia, um, but is now an independent and deeply authoritarian country. And so people are leaving there to escape mandatory conscription. Um, and then Ethiopians as well, um, have attempted to leave, you know, prior persecution, and um, there are um, just uh, tensions between various ethnic groups um, and uh, and poverty and some of the other problems that we've seen in the Horn for a long period of time. And so in desperation, in the need to leave these um, homelands, uh, refugees have um, walked up the Nile um, but they've also, as we're aware, you know, seeking boats across the channel to Europe and, and other things. But this one path up the Nile um, has, it's not new, but it's um, in recent years received a, a new surge of interest. Um, so there are a lot of people that travel on from Ethiopia to Khartoum um, through Sudan um, and then on up the Nile to Egypt. Um, and it's hard to estimate how many people are how many people from Ethiopia or Eritrea are in Cairo. Um, Those numbers, um, you know, you can't simply look at the refugee registration numbers because I think there are, from my impression from being there, is that there are a lot of people from from those two countries who don't register, who are on the down low, who are, you know, hoping just to survive. and the people I spoke to, and I spoke to a lot of people, I was there for only two weeks, but I was out in this neighborhood, um, Arda Eliwa, in uh, Western Cairo, which is just this fabulous um, community, um, incredibly diverse there, but um, riddled with these individual acts of violence and discrimination against people with darker skin. Um, so it has this racist tone to it, but also people specifically from Ethiopia who are in a country that many Egyptians see 
um, to be in contest with Egypt over the Nile waters. Um, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is not new. It was um, proposed by um, two presidents ago, two Ethiopian prime ministers ago, actually, um, Melisanawi. And, um, and so it's been around for more than a decade as a, as a concept, but it really got its lift off under the current prime minister in Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed. So, so yes, there's a lot of violence. Um, there are a lot of threats of violence um, between the countries, um, and then a lot of um, incidents of individual violence against Ethiopians in Cairo. So I didn't even think about this until you were responding to my question, and that is the impact that the uh, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam may have on uh, the migrant issue when it comes to migrants trying to cross uh, the Mediterranean, trying to cross the channel to get to Europe. So uh, how much of an impact does is the GERD, is the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, having on that migration issue? Because you would think that that would maybe lead the entire, all of Europe and the entire region to realize that these uh, Ethiopians who are coming over, Eritreans who are coming over, it's all about contestation of the Nile's water. And I have never seen that in any of the reports about the quote-unquote migrant problem that Europe is ha having. So how much do you think the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and the control over the Nile is having on the migration issue when it comes to people trying, Ethiopians and Eritreans especially, trying to get into Europe? It's always it's always bad to be a refugee. Um, anytime you're forced out of your home um, is a problem. And we know that one of the entrenched one of the many entrenched problems within the Horn of Africa is famine and uh, environmental degradation uh, and, and lack of water access. Um, and so water has been a profound feature of conflict within the Horn of Africa, Egypt, um, uh, 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 Sudan and Ethiopia for a long period of time. I mean, the um, treaties that Egypt keeps pointing to date back to, you know, the colonial era in the 1920s, um, treaties that a very Western-facing Egypt, um, which was a, you know, a, a British protectorate for a period of time, um, uh, um, treaties that were written by the West and that deprived Ethiopia of its water. So this contest is not just um, it's not a new thing. It's not based on this one earthwork. Um, and indeed, in the piece, I look back at um, some of the other international challenges caused by prior dam works on the Nile. Um, but we see increasingly around the world, but, but particularly in this region, that environmental issues, um, um, farming degradation, the inability of people to simply feed themselves, which then causes war and conflict between different groups over particular, you know, um, fecund or fertile territory. Um, and we're only going to see this more. Um, and so these refugees who are looking for food, um, who are signatories or, or um, I don't know, representatives of a particular nation or an ethnicity, they carry that with them. Um, and then the contest over the Nile has compounded that for refugees in Egypt. So. Um, yes, I think um, this is one example of the kind of displacement that is going to increasingly take place around the world because of the, the need for water and um, uh, the climate crisis.
So if Egypt's claim to the Nile is based on this treaty of 1929, based on a century-old, nearly century-old colonial agreement, do other nations in the region that depend on the Nile view this as an extension or a continuation of that Western colonialism, but just with Egypt as its proxy? I think it's related, yes, in that, um, you know, um, Abiy Ahmed, the current um, prime minister of Ethiopia, has cultivated uh, pan-Africanism that's really exciting from the outside, right? We we love the ideas of, of African nations um, standing for their them, themselves and and um, creating flourishing democracies that protect their own people. Um, you know, this anti-Western aid um, rhetoric, however, doesn't really match the behavior of those nations. Um, and so while there's this turn in the horn away from Western influence, many of these countries, because of their instability, um, still require Western support. Um, what they've found, however, many of the leaders in that region, is that if they look to, say, Russia or China, these countries that don't really offer humanitarian support with those strings of humanitarian um, um, good behavior, right? Um, uh, it makes China and Russia look more um, appealing to some of these countries. Um, and so once again, we're seeing kind of a proxy uh, a war take place or a proxy conflict take place where, um, where Western nations have their loyal subjects or imperial subjects on the continent. Um, but yes, you're, you're very much right. This um, old treaty between Egypt um, and Sudan and Ethiopia. And of course, just to reiterate your opening, the Nile has two primary tributaries. The White Nile um, is um, begins over in Lake Victoria and really gives the Nile its length. But it's the Blue Nile that begins um, near Lake Tana in Ethiopia. Um, that provides 80% of the water um, in the Nile um, to that tributary, to that, to that river. And so Ethiopia is the source of this water. And for a long time, the Ethiopians have said, um, this is our water. Like, we need to benefit from this in some way. But um, Egypt is, uh, um, you know, defined itself by the Nile for centuries and has... Um, um, leveraged its influence, um, kind of its might in the region and its rivalry with Ethiopia um, to maintain full control over those waters and to pretty much veto any water works that other nations had. Um, there are some water works in Sudan the, um, that Cairo and Khartoum were able to work out, but Ethiopia and Egypt um, and Cairo have long had a contentious relationship that prevented anything taking place, any, any development happening in Ethiopia. So a big part of the national identity then of uh, Egypt would, would is the Nile. And you talk about how this is leading to all sorts of nationalism along the Nile, whether it's in Ethiopia or Egypt, are they both fighting over what their national identity is? Because it would seem like national national identity as well as nationalism would become a huge obstacle in any form of cooperation when it comes to the flow of the Nile. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the issue uh, of the baffler that this piece is included in, um, I'm really pleased that it's a, a, an issue on nationalism um, around the world and making us think about, I guess, the 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 power and the benefit of nationalism you know it can bring individuals to leadership roles but if those individuals don't have democracy in mind it can also um be destructive um the um there's my doorbell <laughs> the um the challenge in Ethiopia is for independence, right? Um Abi came to power with the hope of um creating an independent and democratic Ethiopia. And when his um, uh, contentions with former leadership um, boiled over into what became a disastrous war uh, beginning in November of 2020, um, uh, he quickly moved away from all of those democratic tendencies. But nonetheless, his objective of you know, making Ethiopia independent and strong and an economic powerhouse very much is supported or dovetails with this project of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Again, begin, uh, it was begun by a predecessor, but Abi picked it up and there were efforts all over the country to raise money to build this dam. You know, um, communities were hosting um, uh, uh, potlucks and individuals were, you know, tithing their pay state employees. And so a lot of this money was raised by Ethiopian people. So so that's one form of nationalism as we've seen it around Abi as um, all the promise of the future of Ethiopia is invested um, on the one hand in success over the prior um, leaders of the country, the war in Tigray, um, which uh, peace agreements were signed last November. So we'll see how that works. But secondly, on economic independence, and when one project has been imbued with all of that hope and promise, um, it is a pretty risky prospect. Um, on the hand of Egypt, it's really just um, um, LCC is a dictator, um, hands down. Um, and the country has been completely unable for several decades to address its lack of water, its water problem. The Nile, um, and I'll have to double check or we can check this together, but a vast majority, like 80 or 90% of Egyptians live within one or two miles of the Nile. So it is the corridor that gives life to this nation. The rest of the country, which is, you know, a great in great part, sand. And so the Nile is absolutely necessary. It has long been inadequate to individuals um, in Egypt. Um, it doesn't provide enough water. Um, and the country has been unable to get around that fact, to restructure water use in agriculture, for instance, which is one of the, the great um, uses of water in Egypt. And al-Sisi doesn't have the ability, the political clout or the political finesse to say, um, wait a minute, we need to restructure our water use um, in a meaningful way. I think there's a lot of rhetoric there, but in a meaningful way. And so here is the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It gave Egyptians an enemy and it was, you know, very easy for LCC to tap into that as a tool for his own political gain. 
And I want to get back to the, uh, you know, the mismanagement that Egypt has of their water resources. But I'm going to jump a little bit forward into your article just for a moment, because you mentioned how in Cairo you meet a man by the name of Yared, who had been a singer at uh, somebody's wedding. And Yared wanted to show us where he lived with his wife. She greeted us at the door with a bright-eyed toddler on her hip. She told me that she had been harassed by other Ethiopians in Cairo for posting criticism of the Ethiopian government on Facebook and assaulted on the streets for being Ethiopian while walking home from work on an Egyptian man slapped her butt and stole her cell phone. So she is not only treated with discrimination by Egyptians, but she is also disliked by other Ethiopians. And I just want to make this point that there is criticism within Ethiopia of the Ethiopian government, despite the fact that it is bringing about this grand Ethiopian Renaissance dam. So what is the criticism that even Ethiopians are having of either the current government or the dam in general? Um, oh, God, that's so big. Um, Chuck, I don't know where to start. Let's start with the war. Um and I'll do this really quickly um, because it's incredibly complicated. Um, a one ethnic group, and I'm using ethnic here as countrymen in Ethiopia use it. Um, it's basically defined by language. Um, when um, Ethiopia received, uh, got independent, when, when Haile Selassie, um, the ruler of Ethiopia, was deposed in 1974, um, the independence groups um, became the new leaders of the country. Um, and the, that independence group in Ethiopia, which granted Eritrea its independence and let it go let it go on its way, that independence group in Ethiopia was uh, dominated by uh, the Tigrayans, um, namely Melis Zanawi, uh, the who became president and then prime minister. Um, that group ruled the country with a strong hand for a long time. Um, they established a lot of Western connections and there was a lot of development that took place, but it quite often was accompanied by um, the stifling of free press, um, the quashing of uh, riots or protests on the street and other anti-democratic behaviors. Um, many of the other ethnic groups in the country and, and Ethiopia is currently after you know, after Tigray uh, passed, uh, um, wrote a constitution and passed it in the 90s, that um, the structure of Ethiopia currently is 11 independent states. Um, they are a federation and they have fought for territory for, you know, for as long as the Horn of Africa has existed. Individuals there have, you know, um, wanted more fertile territorial claims. And, and so these individual kingdoms that ultimately became Ethiopia have always been in flux. Um, when Tigray ruled, as I said, they were oppressive. Um, they um, dwindled over a period of time and were ultimately pushed out in 2018 with the rise of Abiy Ahmed, who is the current prime minister. Abiy came in um, and immediately formed peace with Northern Eritrea, the, the, the country just north of Ethiopia, and uh, received a Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, he was the darling of the international community, um, much like his predecessor, um, um, uh, uh, Haile Selassie in the 1970s. Um, but that's deep history. Um, and so Abiy was, you know, um, revered 
for his youth, for his education, and for what he um, professed were his plans for the future of Ethiopia. Um, so, um, so when the Tigrayans retreated to their territory, which is in the north of the country, um, tensions between the new administration under Abiy Ahmed and the old administration that he had pushed out, the Tigrayans, um, increased. And on November 3rd, 2020, the federal troops of Ethiopia um, kind of blacked out the entire region of Tigray, where 7 million people lived, and um, cut banking and um, internet and all of this. Um, basically, journalists couldn't get in or out of the place. And that lasted for um, almost to the day two years, for a long two years, um, half a million over half a million civilians were killed. Um, up to 5 million people were displaced. And so when you're talking about um, the violence that Ethiopians are experiencing on the streets of Cairo, much of that is an extension of the violence that is taking place in Ethiopia right now. We're in the aftermath of the war, we're hoping peace will hold, but the violence against Tigray um, by the federal government has caused old rifts among these many ethnic groups to come up again, particularly um, in the areas around Addis Ababa um, of Oromo. Um, and so there's ongoing conflict in Ethiopia. Much of it these days is ethnic based, or at least that's a fault line that can be used for political purposes and violence purposes. And in the streets of Ardelewa, Cairo, Ethiopians stand out they are um, they they stand out among the Egyptian this you know predominantly homogenous Egyptian community and um, and they know each other. It's a very small, tight knit group. I mean, whenever you're living in persecution, you tend to know one another um, in your in your persecuted group. But within that persecuted group, there are these residual rifts that are left over from the homeland of Ethiopia. You also point to the grand scale mismanagement by the Egyptian government of their what you call grand scale environmental mismanagement. And uh, does does Egypt, do they have the resources to do a better job at environmental management or do they not have the people and leadership to address the problem? What is the biggest obstacle to that environment, environmental mismanagement? Because We've had guests on the show before uh, during the early stages of the pandemic when people were talking about, you know, uh, supply chain issues. We had guests on the show telling us that in Egypt, the problem isn't supply chain issues as well it is, but it's it's more so the, you know, globalization and neoliberalism and the free market attitude that Egypt uh, embraced and changing their uh, from a nation that had food sovereignty and uh, growing its own wheat to a country that is now a food importer and they export, uh, they grow different products now that are not something that can be consumed for food. So what are the biggest obstacles when it comes to Egypt's mis environmental mismanagement and does globalization play a role in that mismanagement? Yeah, I agree with all of that, but globalization can also be managed, right? Just just like anything else, there are ways that Egypt could have put its um, economic and environmental future first in making decisions as to what crops would be grown. So without regulation, when individual entities 
and in many cases influential in Egypt are making their decisions about how to focus industry and manufacturing and, and farming and development um, without some sort of direction, um, those industries are going to ch go chase that dollar. And if that means that food is not being produced at the necessary rate within Egypt's borders, um, so be it. I think LCC hasn't had the political power to, to reorganize these influential industries and, and groups within the country. Um, I mean, for a long time, Egypt has known that its water supply is diminishing, quite limited, and not going to improve. Um, and yet, the country hasn't found a way to um, make its, to find other sources of water, quite simply. Um, and, and I mean, it's not the only country that hasn't done that, right? The rest of us um, have been swayed by industry chasing profit and um, and a centralized government that hasn't really thought clearly about sustainability and how we're going to feed ourselves in the future. Um, so I don't I don't want to single Egypt out, but the water crisis in Egypt is is dire, and the country has got to uh, do something about it. Um, I think you know Egypt has been holding um, annual meetings on the water crisis, but we're just not seeing a wholly top down um, bottom-up restructuring of the use of those resources um, in a way that um, the problem demands. We are speaking with Ann Newman, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, Hydropower, a Dam on the Nile, Royals, Democratic Relations in the Horn of Africa. But in it, it's not just Egypt that is having issues with mismanagement. As you point out, uh, Ethiopia is uh, actually having their own mismanagement problems when it comes to the construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. When it comes to this mismanagement of the GERD in Ethiopia or the environmental mismanagement of Egypt, to what extent does corruption play any role? Or is mismanagement in both countries more of a reflection of inept governance? I, I, I hate binary questions, but they're always fun to ask. Is it ineptitude <laughs> or corruption? Um, I think it's a mess of, of all of it. Um, in Ethiopia, the issue with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is that Ethiopia has... Um, has desperately needed this dam. Ethiopia would like to lift its people out of poverty. It would like to bring electricity to um, Ethiopians in the rural areas as well as, as the cities. Um, the numbers of those who have electricity in Ethiopia are still incredibly low. Um, people living without lights or electric heaters or, or you know, even a way to um, uh, electrify uh, farming processes. And so, um, this dam is a way to do that, but also to create a surplus of electricity that the country can then use to generate revenue. And indeed, the Nile begins in Ethiopia. There's no reason why the country shouldn't be able to utilize this natural resource of their own. And yet, the country hasn't had the ability to to you know bring together the resources to complete this dam until now. Um, and uh, the political challenges, um, the the recalcitrance of the Egyptians and the Sudanese to even to even work on um, negotiations about the water. You know, Nile, uh, 
Egypt just shut down this conversation again and again and again. Um, and so even when Ethi when Egypt says, okay, we're, you know, as they did in, in the fall, let's, um, let's talk about this. Let's, let's make these negotiations happen. Um, it's just long in coming far too slow and Ethiopia single-mindedly unilaterally has, um, under Abi's direction pushed ahead. Said, so, okay, we're, we're doing this on our own. No one has, um, the right to tell us what we can and can't do for our people. Um, and, um, and Egypt and Sudan, um, just have to accept that we are going to, we are going to provide for our own. Um, there's a bit of messianic, um, language in Abi's, um, communications. Um, he believes that he was appointed by God. He harks back to the imperial era under Haile Selassie, um, he has shown a lot of favorability toward one group, the Amhara, that have ruled the country for um, uh, for about a century, um, and uh, and so this dam project has then been imbued with um, with kind of a destiny for Ethiopia. So I think the way that it's been used is problematic on the ground. Um, the um, reticence to speak with Sudan and Egypt um, has um, has not been good for Ethiopia, um, but those two countries have not been open to those conversations either. And so, um, and as I write in the piece, um, there weren't many outside sources that were able to step in and constructively help these three countries over the hurdle. So one of the things I, I just kept wondering about is uh, obviously Egypt and Ethiopia are both very, very aware that there needs to be coordination for them to properly manage the Nile. Yet Egypt is doing their own thing. Ethiopia is doing their own thing. How popular is cooperation within Ethiopia or Egypt? Are, are they both so nationalist at this point that cooperation is just not politically popular? And without that co cooperation, what does that mean for the region? Well, cooperation hasn't really been the um, the ask that either President El Sisi or Abiy Ahmed um, has discussed with their people. You know, it's not like El Sisi is saying we really need to cooperate with Ethiopia, and it's not as though Abi Ahmed is saying we really need to cooperate with Egypt. They've kind of been at a loggerheads, and so I think both of those individuals, the, both of those leaders, have been able to use this as a political um, um, rallying cry among their their diehard supporters. Um, however, cooperation is just going to have to happen. One of the sticking points has been the filling of the reservoir behind the dam. And again, this is an enormous dam. It's more than a mile wide. Um, it uh, uh, will be the largest dam on the continent once it's completed. And this reservoir, I think, holds like three times the volume of the Nile River behind it. It's just going to be enormous. But every rainy season for the past three years, Ethiopia has, without any agreement with Sudan or Cairo, um, with Khartoum or Cairo, um, filled part of that reservoir. Now, the Egyptians originally said, you know, we could imagine you filling the reservoir over 20 years. <laughs> and the Ethiopians have said, you know, six. And so there's a huge difference between um, uh, the starting place for either of these countries. Now, of course, the pressure 
to fill that reservoir as quickly as possible to bring this dam online is um, that the higher the pressure behind the, the dam walls, um, the more turbines that can be employed to start generating electricity. But as I note also in the piece, um, all of this would be amazing for Ethiopia. You know, um, they get turbine after turbine online and individuals um, in cities around the country start to reap the benefits of this electrification. But because of the turmoil in Ethiopia at the moment, the, um, the decline of popularity of Abiy Ahmed, um, the um, ongoing violence in different states around the country, just the internal destruction of this hideous two-year war, um, just gr gruesome war, um, all of these things have undermined Abi's popularity, but also prevented him from really focusing on development of this and other projects. Um, that doesn't that doesn't mean that he hasn't developed parks and and other things within um, Addis Ababa, particularly. Um, but just that um, there are a lot of things that are left to be done if this dam is actually going to be utilized to the extent of its promise. So has Egypt been unfairly flexing their power over the Nile? Because you quote Foreign Minister Tedros Adhanom uh, saying in a statement, Ethiopian Foreign Minister, saying in a statement that Ethiopia cannot remain poor. It must utilize its resources to lift its people out of poverty. So is Egypt purposely keeping Ethiopia poor without electricity and plagued by famine through their management of the uh, High Aswan Dam? Is, is Egypt purposely and intentionally keeping uh, Ethiopia poor through their policies of water management? I want to pull a couple of things apart. This dam only works if it's got the backup infrastructure to tap into its power, right? Like you need power lines and power grids and deals with other countries for the excess energy generated. You need to um, make sure that people in rural villages are moved to areas where they can receive electricity and benefit from it. So just saying that Egypt is preventing the building of this dam and therefore keeping Ethiopia in poverty is only a half true statement. Um, Ethiopia has to also follow through on the benefits of this dam, on completing the benefits of this dam. That said, yes, um, there's no way that a country can monopolize the waters that begin in another country. Um, and there are examples on the continent, particularly in West Africa, um, where um, multiple countries came together to negotiate the use of a natural resource, a river. Um, and that just hasn't happened here in part because of the long history between Egypt and Ethiopia um, that I go to go into. I go into the religious schism and you know just the, the diplomatic um, um, guffaws over the years that have kept um, Egypt and Ethiopia in this crazy rivalry, but the crazy rivalry has prevented them from working together to allow Ethiopia to use its own resources. I want to bring up Trump here because this is very interesting. You write that the three <laughs> countries, Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia, signed the Agreement of Declaration of Principles in 2015 in which they committed to 
cooperation and equitable, reasonable water use. Many in Egypt and Sudan now regret this action because Ethiopia has interpreted it as tacit approval of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, exempting them from giving Egypt or Sudan any concessions. By 2019, the World Bank and the U.S. Treasury, then under the direction of the Trump administration, intervened in the conflict, overseeing talks among the three countries. The effort turned into yet another embarrassment for Trump after taking four months to produce an agreement. The mediators failed to get Ethiopia, which resented external non-African involvement to sign. Meanwhile, Ethiopia claimed that the World Bank and the U.S. Treasury overstepped their bounds and favored Egypt by demanding drought mitigation plans. The Ethiopian government said the agreement was against the sovereignty of Ethiopia. So did the Trump administration favor Egypt in those talks and in U.S. politics more generally? Is there partisan or is it bipartisan support for favoring Egypt in the region? Well, we don't um, we don't think of our former U.S. president as the most subtle and politically adept guy when it came to international relations. Um, And this example, when when um, Trump's administration stepped in to try to um, solve the problem between Ethiopia and Egypt, um, they just really bungled it in in a hideous way. Um, they were bullying. They were condescending. Um, you know, Trump um, said that uh, the the conflict quote. Let me read this quote because it's so so bad, so good. It's so bad. It's a very dangerous situation. Trump said on the call, referring to the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, because Egypt is not going to be able to live that way, and they'll end up blowing up the dam. And I said it, and I say it loud and clear they'll blow up the dam. Um, This was in October of 2020. It was right before the war in Tigray began in Ethiopia. Um, Tensions were high for a host of reasons. And here's the U.S. president on behalf of LCC, right? Like without, you know, just jumping in and and tag teaming LCC and, and threatening Ethiopia that Egypt was going to bomb the dam. I mean, that was really bad for international relations. Um, and it just made the U.S. administration um, look completely inept in everything that they were doing. It did not um, move the conversation along at all. And it just continued to 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 stay um, a, a terrible situation like that administration. The Trump administration had no effect on the negotiations in a positive direction and indeed um, set back the negotiations. So what impact do you think the Trump statement on Egypt blowing up Ethiopia's dam may have had on the possibility that that might actually happen? Did Trump in any way normalize the notion of Egypt's military blowing up the dam? No, you know, there were several exercises where Egypt and Sudan, um, you know, got some planes together and did exercises, you know, in in an area near the Ethiopian border. Um, And there were other kind of you know, big dick actions that took place. Can I use that term? Um, just, yes, you can. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, but just, you know, some really stupid moves on the part of of Egypt, or at least spearheaded by Egypt, um, threatening, right? And, you know, Egypt is an enormous country. Um, it um, has a lot of weapons. And LCC was just trying to prop up his political movement and and masculinity probably. And um, and Ethiopia has just, you know, countered that with their own rhetoric, Abiy Ahmed, and 
put their head down and carried on and, you know, said, this is our sovereign resource. We're going to use it the best we can. If you're going to continue acting that way, we just will not engage. I just learned that uh, when somebody says big dick on the radio show, I spit up coffee. Uh, and and uh, I got one last question for you. Ann Newman wrote the Baffler article, Hydropower, a Dam on the Nile Royals Democratic Relations. Uh, she is the author of the book, The Good Death and Exploration of Dying in America. You can follow Ann on Twitter at Otherspoon, and I strongly suggest you do. She posts great stuff on social media, and her writing at the Baffler has always been fantastic. It's always great to talk to you, Ann. But as you know, one last question, and our final question is... The question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or your, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that China's appeal to authoritarian African leaders is in part due to the country's lack of humanitarian strings on financing, as you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. Dictators mustn't flush, flush their latent democratic principles to qualify for Chinese funding. Chinese involvement in the GERD, according to Lisa Klassen, has changed the historical balance of forces between Egypt Sudan, and Ethiopia, but it has also signaled that China may be ready to move beyond its long-standing non-interference policy. What is the likelihood that this may mean either Chinese arms or military expertise flowing to the region or even Chinese military boots on the ground? Could this become much bigger than a regional conflict? What's the likelihood that it could become much bigger than just a regional conflict in Africa? You know, the United States relationship with Ethiopia has always been um, a proxy, um, uh, 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 a proxy war with um, global, if not enemies, at least non-allies. Um, the reason that I'm so interested in this region is that my father was stationed in Eritrea, a, a base called Cagnu Station, um, in the 1960s, when Eritrea was actually um, a part of Ethiopia. So the United States had a base there where they were spying on Russia from this incredible plateau in Ethiopian territory. Um, and they were spying on the moon race. And then ultimately, um, and it, this is all classified, but this is, this is what um, intelligence assumes at this point was taking place there. Um, uh, and and then you know the, we were in the run up to the Cold War. So like my family has been engaged in the United States use of African nation or territory as a proxy for global influence, um, for intelligence, uh, for the war on terror. Right? Um, the United States um, had Ethiopian troops fighting some of the war on terror for them in, in Somalia and elsewhere in the Horn. So this has long been the dynamic between not just the United States, but Western countries on the continent of Africa. And there's this moment where Ethiopia is saying, um, under this current president, we want to be independent. We want to, um, you know, we, we don't want to rely on other nations. We want to make our own decisions and we want to be a democracy. And the sadness of the past I'll say five years. The sadness to me in the past five years is the absolute collapse of that promise in Ethiopia. And the collapse was, you know, Abi's ego. It was the war that took place. It was this inability for Ethiopia to make um, um, uh, meaningful negotiation with Sudan and, and Egypt um, and a number of other factors have brought us to this moment where um, 
and I think some of this comes out in my analogy, my my storytelling about the High Aswan Dam, right? The High Aswan Dam um, really changed the way that other nations, particularly the West, interacted with governments in the Horn of Africa. And so indeed does this dam have that power where China has a lot of influence. China doesn't care what Abi does with his people. Um, they don't really ask, you know, they don't, they don't put strings on any um, uh, financial aid or things of that sort. There were protests all over the United States, um, one in DC outside the State Department uh, at the beginning of the war um, because the United States sanctioned um, Ethiopia and um, and there's a huge Ethiopian diaspora here in the country um, uh, because of our relationship, our longstanding relationship with Ethiopia. And the message was loud and clear. You don't criticize our president in Ethiopia. Um, he is fighting for the independence of this country and you cannot stymie that. And so that's a long way um, for me to say that this struggle for proxy power on the on the continent of Africa, but particularly in the Horn, as pertains to our discussion today, um, uh, it's been going on for a long time. Um, we've seen shifts um, of loyalty to the United States or of loyalty to Russia and China. And as our relationship with those two powers um, continues to, I'll say, fester, um, we're going to see that reflected in Ethiopia's moves. And it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Again, Anne Newman is the author of The Good Death and Exploration of Dying in America. Follow her on Twitter at Otherspoon. Thank you very much. And you know I'm going to annoy you in the future. And if we do have Alyssa Court on the show, I'll thank you in, on air, as well as being one of the people <laughs> who recommended her, as well as I'll contact you and tell you if that interview happens. Yeah, let me thank some people. I want to thank the Pulitzer Center for funding this reporting. It's really important. And I want to thank you so much for bringing me on. Not a lot of people are paying attention to this, and it means a lot to me. That's why we had you on, because you're paying attention to something that is really important to the entire world and unfortunately is being ignored in the U.S. media, despite all of the money and funding it does have. So thank you yeah. so much, or maybe because of the money and the funding it has. So yeah, I'll keep that exactly. in mind too. All right. So thank you very much, Anne, and uh, have a enjoyable upcoming weekend. Thank you, Chuck. You too. Bye-bye. Take bye. care. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Wow. If what you just heard from Ann Newman on the potentially frightening future of the Nile that made you feel like you actually learned something or yeah this really is hell show your support by becoming a patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell and then you'll get our weekly bonus patreon podcast which streams live every thursday at 10 a.m as well as access to 350 past patreon episodes more than 350 past patreon episodes with uh, our interviews that are not available anywhere else from our 26-year archive only at, currently, only at our Patreon page. You also get a discount on all of our uh, merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support if you are a Patreon patron because you get a secret code word so you can get that discount. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what was a difficult work experience and how did you overcome it? Over at Facebook, Greg G answers, going to an office with managers who prioritize butt-in-seat time <laughs> and management by walking around. 
I got a remote job. Uh, Mark A answers succinctly, Monday, semicolon, drugs. <laughs> Over. Uh, I wish I could plug the restaurant that he owns right now, but I don't think I should because of his answer to the question. Yeah, from maybe hell. not. Maybe next week. <laughs> yeah. Over uh, Twitter way, we got CKUW. Uh, they answer, Robin D'Angelo did a white fragility workshop, Eesh. overcame it by forming a union. Okay. Carlos Marx says, working is a difficult experience, and I still haven't been able to overcome it. Bravo, Carlos Marx. Yeah, true enough, yeah. and coming through with his name there. <laughs> Again. Uh, finally, we got old friend Eats Fart 69 <laughs> who answers, during my late teens, I worked in the cafeteria in a retirement home that specialized in Alzheimer's and dementia. On Christmas Eve, one resident asked where his wife was. Oh, no. I asked the front desk, desk attendant, who explained that the man's wife was in another area of the complex. Well, that doesn't seem as bad as it could have been. No, I know. That's what I thought, I too. Thought it was going, I, I thought it was going in a real bad direction. almost the best case scenario. <laughs> She's right over there. You know? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's sad. So, right. On this week's Patreon, I will share what few insights I have into crime, being a victim of it, perpetrating it, being an observer of it my entire life, and the media's fascination with it, well, their fascination with certain kinds of crimes, but certainly not all forms of crime. And later this morning, my answer to this week's question from hell will give you a taste of what you will be hearing tomorrow if you are a Patreon patron. And let me reassure you that there is a reason we're putting my thoughts to, on crime and committing crime behind a paywall because... They definitely should not be broadcast over the air. Also, on Patreon, we're wrapping up our three-part series in recognition of the one-year anniversary of the war on Ukraine by playing interviews where guests essentially predicted the war here on This Is Hell, dating back to the mid-2000s. This week, we're playing our 2015 conversation with Volodymyr Ishenko, who had reported for The Guardian that Ukraine switched rulers but not the ruling class. And of all of the five interviews that we have shared so far, I think the uh, 2015 one with Volodymyr, as well as the 2013 interview with Nikolai Petro, are the clearly two of the better ones of the collection of five. But the other ones, two of those other ones, also essentially predicted the war in Ukraine back in 2007 and 2008. Now, warning, these interviews we played during the series and again, two earlier conversations that we shared on Patreon, Patreon would not be popular if they were done today, as they do not fit in any of the narratives you are currently hearing about the war in Ukraine. And I want to apologize to some listeners who found the discussions very upsetting. However, you know, exactly what did you expect? After all, this is hell. But the only way you can hear me talk about the pleasure and agony of crime did I say pleasure? As well as upsetting predictions of the war on Ukraine dating back eight years, some dating back as many as 15 years, is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. And if you want to contribute to the sustainability of This Is Hell, if you'd like to continue hearing the show for free on a regular daily or weekly basis. Please show your support by becoming a Patreon patron or just going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We also want to make all 26 years of the show available to everyone again for free. Remember, none of us here on This Is Hell earn anything other than what we get through your support. You may think, well, they're now on four radio stations as well as 
whatever an internet uh, internet radio outlet is, the one in the UK, Beware the Radio, say they must be raking it in. We are definitely not. We give the show to all of our outlets again for free, for nothing. And the only way we can do that and the only way we want to do that is by being completely 100% listener supported. I was watching a PBS fundraiser the other night and they were proudly boasting that 70% of their funding is from viewers. Again, with us, it's 100 because we do not, nor will we ever take any money from any commercial sponsors, nor will we ever accept any corporate grant or foundation money because you've got to be a not-for-profit to do that. And we don't make enough profit to be a not-for-profit. And we do not want to be beholden to any entity or person other than you, the listening audience. So show your appreciation by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash thisishell or just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's show. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. The uncomfortable skin. Are you feeling yourself today? Lucky you. There's a small part of the population that's feeling sick today. There's also a small part that's feeling down or alienated or grumpy. There's also a small part of the population that feels like they're not in the right body today. Gender dysphoria is a real thing. It's been described to me by those who've had to deal with it as having as have the feelings of affirmation on discovering the source of the problem and doing something about it. We counterpose gender, as in gender roles imposed by society, as a quality separate from sex, which we have been taught is biologically determined at birth and inherent in an individual's genetics. We're taught there are two sexes, male and female, the infamous sexual binary. Certain political movements, stand-up comics, evolutionary biologist atheists, and authors of whimsical childhood wizardry adventures seem to believe that transsexuality is the act of using the costume of gender to disguise oneself as a member of the opposite sex. They also seem to believe things even more wrong, but delving into that more as is a topic for another day. Biological sex is more flexible than its common definition. XX chromosomes equal woman, XX chromosomes, XY chromosomes equals man. To quote from an article by Claire Ainsworth, published in Nature magazine eight years ago and reprinted in Scientific American, gene mutations affecting gonad development can result in a person with XY chromosomes developing typically female characteristics, whereas alterations in hormone signaling can cause XX individuals to develop along male lines. She goes on to describe many different instances where hormonal signals governed by varying activity or occurrence of some genes or the sensitivity or insensitivity of some cells to certain hormones blur the lines between the two sexes we generally talk about as having solid boundaries between them. Changes can occur from as early as a few weeks into an embryo's gestation to a decade or two or more of living in the world. 
The conclusion of biology is that sex, not just socially constructed gender, is a spectrum that the rigid dichotomy probably doesn't apply to most people, and demonstrably not to at least one person in a hundred, and those are just the people doctors define as having intersex conditions, or DSDs, disorders of sexual development, medically speaking. When we add to that number those with a powerful psychological sense, not genotypically reinforced, of being miscast as belonging on one side or the other of the oversimplified biological dichotomy, the number of our transgender friends and relatives multiplies. The gender dichotomy was already understood to be a Procrustean diagram, at least by the late 19th century. The feeling even some of my most sophisticated friends have that this is happening all of a sudden comes from the increased visibility trans people have been demanding for generations and are now finally receiving and it is the least they are due because for all the centuries they've been treated as invisible their existences were easily erased by the cruel the phobic the violent and the opportunistic who capitalize on the cruelty and fear-driven violence of others Gender costumes and behavior should not be a prison imposed by society. For that matter, no type of conformity should, no job should, no status in a family should, no position in an institution should. I mean, really, prison shouldn't be a prison imposed by society either, but as I observed last week, we're a society of condemnation. How the world dearly loves a cage, as Ruth Gordon said in Harold and Maude, speaking of Dreyfus imprisoned on Devil's Island. That's a film from the 70s very much about gender roles as prisons. It's all to keep up appearances, isn't it? The fascists demand that others submit to the imprisonment they insist is a rightful natural place. And if a person won't submit, they make up lies about their demands being immoral. They make up lies about them grooming, indoctrinating, or drinking blood from innocent children. Folks eat that stuff up. They've been eating it up for centuries. They'll volunteer for your terrorist militia or torch-wielding mob for sure if you feed them that slop. The first institution for treating victims of sex misassignment was founded in Germany in 1919. It was destroyed by Nazis in 1933, and just yesterday, 90 years later, the governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee, put his signature on a law that makes gender-affirming medical care for minors a felony. It categorizes as child abuse any care that includes hormone treatments or puberty blockers meant to aid a minor to identify with or live as a purported identity inconsistent with their assigned sex at birth. Purported identity? Live as a purported identity? What exactly is being called into question by that language? Oh, yes, it's not a real identity. It's a disguise. It's just a trick to help a prisoner escape. Health professionals around the world recommend the healthcare Tennessee just banned for treating gender dysphoria. It can mean the difference between a teenager coming to accept themselves in the world or taking themselves out of the world through suicide. The law goes into effect a year from now, at which time all minors in Tennessee receiving such care must stop. Governor Bill Lee coincidentally shares an identifying moniker with the nom de plume under which William S. Burroughs, the homosexual poet, wrote his first novel, Junkie. 
Governor Lee, on the same day, banned drag shows on public property, an act that might be his indirect gambit to privatize libraries. Then again, it might be an ironic homage to Burroughs, meant to make us imagine what he might say were he alive to witness this abomination, like, that fascist son of a bitch must be snorting sandy flush or something. This new resurgence of bigotry around the world is depressing, but there is reason for hope. The Tennessee laws and other similar ones being enacted in other states, let's call them vicious blue laws, are not going to be implemented without facing legal challenges that have already been prepared. Yes, the Supreme Court is made up largely of exactly the type of prison-loving jurists who would support the blue laws, the vicious blue laws, but they're also cowards, and current events show popular support for brutal close-mindedness falling. The white supremacist day of hate was a no-show burger of nothingness. Likewise, the audience for this year's CPAC conference, since Fox News's Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and Sean Hannity were recently exposed in emails as liars, mocking the intelligence and beliefs of their own audience, things just haven't been the same. But it's a crime of abuse that individuals merely struggling to be the person they feel they're intended to be have to face victimization during this decade's right-wing temper tantrum. And it's also a crime that women's bodies and health are being booted around the political arena. It's a crime of abuse that poor people have to continue enduring the indignities and violent barriers the profit-over-people system puts between them and opportunities to escape into a better future. It's a hate crime when police decide to escalate violence towards citizens because they're black. It's easy for me to say, just hang on, we'll get through this, because I'm a lot less likely to die than those exemplars as a result of these spasms of fascism's restless leg syndrome, especially now that I've been vaccinated against the plague. But lately, I feel we've all been showing how much we hate these disguises they make us wear. It's like the emperor's new clothes in reverse. It's the people's painfully uncomfortable uniforms. I don't mean to commandeer the struggle of trans people as a metaphor, more to look to it as an inspiration. A trans journalist described what it would be like to be forced to inhabit their previously assigned sex now that they've taken steps to become the person they always needed to be, as akin to wearing a skin suit. We know the rulers aren't wearing anything special if they're wearing anything at all. They have no right to enforce a dress code of ill-fitting skin suits. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. Bravo, sir, but I'm up against the clock, so I gotta go. Well, how is that my problem? I don't know. In until right. next time. Yes, sir. Stay beautiful. You too. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and share with us the rest of our listeners' answers if there are any more. This week's question from Hell is what was a difficult work experience and how did you overcome it? And there are no new responses. So I really like Carl uh, Carlos Marx's uh, working is a difficult work experience and I still haven't been able to overcome it yet. I also like the brevity of Mark A saying uh, Monday, drugs. SLS saying, your dad. Uh, Wally R saying, um, overcome. But 
If you don't mind, Dan, I think the best answer to this week's question from hell was Old Grouch saying in the Navy and learned that the equipment for which I was responsible was a direct link from Washington to nuclear submarines. I voluntarily revoked my top secret clearance on the basis that if I knew orders for nuclear war were being transmitted, I would turn the equipment off. So I got discharged once again. White privilege kept me out of prison. I think that's this week's best answer to the question yeah, from hell. sounds like a hero. That deserves a trucker Exactly, hat. exactly. So, old Grouch, we'll be contacting you shortly and asking you for your mailing address and what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll have that in the mail to you post-haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, what was a difficult work experience and how did you overcome it? An associate of mine and I were working in the same, let's say, informal market. He decided that while returning home from a, let's call it a transaction, and decided that he needed a 19-cent Allen wrench. Unfortunately, he had just spent every penny, so he decided to shoplift it. Store security detained him. When the police arrived, they found on his person, as the cops say, contraband. That was at the center of the less than formal business within which each of us participated. He was then taken to the cop shop where he was interrogated. I saw him a few hours later after he'd been released, and he told me that he was shown a list of names and asked to identify any names he saw on that list that were in the industry, if you will. Each name had a number of checks next to it, seeing my name on the list and no check marks next to it. My associate figured that I was not in as much trouble as the others, or the police were not as interested in me, and he decided to point out my name to law enforcement. I quickly skateboarded, yes, I am legally blind and I skateboard, all over town uh, to all of my contractors and warned them that we were all possibly going to be rolled up on at any minute. I overcame that difficult experience by handing off my business to someone else and leaving the game, I mean the industry, permanently. And speaking of which, we are currently talking to someone about their experience in the game and how recreational marijuana legalization and big money corporatization destroyed their livelihood. Like we said for years here on This Is Hell, do not legalize it, decriminalize it. And because it was legalized instead of decriminalized, legacy small shareholders with decades of experience are now seeing their livelihood taken away from them by big money operations who have driven prices so far down, so low that some small-time, highly skilled operators are being driven out of their lifelong business, leading many to commit suicide, especially in places that were once the site of the highest quality product in the U.S. and possibly the world, a quality that has greatly diminished, a quality that they're now saying corporations are putting who knows what chemicals into the stuff you get at dispensaries. Like anything, legalizing it meant getting the law involved. And when the law is involved, corporations are protected. Corporations always get the upper hand as they are the ones helping write the laws that benefit themselves while profiting off the exploitation and misery of others. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, who are our confirmed guests for next week's show? We have two confirmed guests. Siddharth Kara is author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. Siddharth is an author, researcher, and activist on modern slavery. He's a British Academy Global Professor and an Associate Professor of Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery at Nottingham University. You can be a professor of human trafficking and modern slavery? I never thought about it, but I mean, (laughs) this guy is for sure. 
moreover, big thanks to listener Patrick L., who suggested we have Siddharth on the show. Uh, the second guest we have booked is writer, ethnographer, and human rights activist Michael Gould Wartowski, who will be on to talk about his Tom Dispatch article, Welcome to the Predator State, where the scorpions on the corner just might kill you, which is about the killing of Tyree Nichols by a Memphis police unit called Scorpion. I always like how they call it a special police unit, as if it's not like the rest of the police department, you know? It's, it's especially awful. They're special, so yeah. they're just rotten apples. We yeah. can get rid of them. So again, thanks to... Uh, Dan Hill for producing today's show. Also, thanks to Will Ippen, Lindsey Gorey. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth. Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History. Sebastian Vupper for another Past Inside the Present. Andrew Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston. Just because. Talk to you on Patreon tomorrow at patreon.com slash this is hell when I will be exposing my life exposed to crime and we'll be wrapping up our three-week series on Ukraine that has really, really upset some people and for that, again, my apologies but what did you expect from a show called This Is Hell? Hang out with me members of the This Is Hell crew and other This Is Hell listeners for office hours this evening our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, which is, is now at its regular Wednesday evening time, beginning around 6 and going until at least 10 p.m. Drop by, join us, and if you do, I'll give you maybe some subvertising stickers, maybe a free book. Who knows what I'll give you? I'll give you something. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening, starting around 6, running till about 10. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>